You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey everybody, Randy Bolander here with the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with us. Let me just issue a disclaimer here. If you hear a large bang in the background, they are doing some blasting near our neighborhood where they're apparently building some homes and uh, there's a lot of rock. And so if you hear an explosion, I'm probably fine. I, I'm, I'm saying probably, but yeah, I'll, I'll be all right. Anyway, before we dive into teaching from Sunday morning, let me tell you about something that's coming up this coming weekend. I'm super excited about the Bridge family is going to be meeting in a pop-up location in Martin City, about 133rd Street and Homes, directly across from Jack Stack Barbecue. If you're local, you got it figured out now. That's where we are. It's going to smell great. Please join us Easter Sunday, 1030 a.m. in the Martin City Events Place. Um, it's right there on the corner, 133rd and Homes. Uh, church starts at 1030. It's going to be family style. Everybody all in together. Rachel and Walese Fa'agutu and others are going to be leading worship. And it's going to be big fun. Bring a friend. With that... Now we have teaching from Sunday where we talked about the endurance of Christ during Passion Week. This morning, last week we talked about pioneering and uh, Jesus calling us to go from the get-go. Like the very beginning of when he calls us, it's let's go, come. So much of the Christian experience is described in the Bible as following Jesus and preparing for what comes next, right? Lots of words about preparing. No believer in Jesus is ever afforded the luxury of saying, I have arrived. When you say, I have arrived, it just shows you how disconnected you are from what the Lord is doing. No believer's ever arrived. Your present moment, the circumstances that you are in, are a master class for the moments to come. Like right now, you're in school. What am I in school for? You're in school for the moments to come. Had a good friend uh, years ago. He's passed away since then. Some of you would have known him, Tom Mills. Tom was maybe 60, had been a Methodist pastor for about 30 years, ended up working at a, uh, a large parachurch ministry where he often reported to people who had been alive less time than Tom had been in ministry. And he just served. And I remember one time watching him having to deal with these young people that, you know, Tom had forgotten more than they had learned already in ministry. And he was always happy. And I just asked him, I said, Tom, how do you do it? You did this for 30 years. How do you do it? And I remember he just smiled. He had a great Texas accent. And he goes, every day I just put on my big boy pants and go to school. That's what I do. I just figure there's something to learn here. And Tom lived in that idea that the moment he was in was a master class for the moments to come. Right now, we are being prepared for ministry opportunities that we don't even have right now. So where's my opportunity? You're in training for the opportunity to come. Right now, we are being prepared for character tests that we are not being tested. You're like, well, my character's being tested now. Well, you better, you better do well because the tests to come are harder and this is a master class for that. We are being prepared for responsibilities that we don't have. And every experience that you have is a building block for the experiences to come. And if you stumble on the low blocks, be glad you do because you will soon be on the high wire. And over the years, we've all seen people in ministry who fell off the high wire because they skipped the low building blocks. 
Jeremiah, early in his ministry, was prophesying, and he was in his hometown of Analoth. Now, Jeremiah is righteous, and these people that he was prophesying to were frustrating. And he actually goes into quite a complaint about the people to the Lord. And you know how God responds when Jeremiah complains about the people because they're not receiving the prophecy? Paraphrased greatly, the Lord's paraphrase for him is this, suck it up, buttercup. Now, this is actually what the Lord tells him in in Jeremiah 12, 5. He says, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with the horses? And if in a safe landing you were so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Jeremiah was struggling with ministry in his own hometown. Wait till he prophesies in Jerusalem. He's like struggling off Broadway. Wait till he gets to Times Square. Inside of eight chapters, he's going to be in stocks. In 18 chapters, he's going to be in prison in a cistern. And so he goes to God and he's like, these people, God's like, you better pass this test because there are other tests coming that are harder. Your moment right now is a master class for what you're going to go into. It's God's way of saying there's going to be ups and downs in life and you are a product of both of those. The best way that you can ensure personal growth And more importantly, the best way to please the Father is to learn how to stand steady in all circumstances. Every one of you has a God-ordained destiny. But on your way to that destiny, you're going to have positive and negative experiences. And here's the part that kind of stinks. It's going to take the product of both of those circumstances for you to achieve that destiny. Like, it's going to take you standing firm no matter which way the tide flows. If you believe in a sovereign God, and it puts you in a quandary if you don't believe in a sovereign God, because what is that? But if you believe that God is in control, he's either causing or allowing some things to happen to you at times that are unpleasant. And how do you walk that out? 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may endure it. We think of temptation here as like temptation with a specific sin. But it can also be a temptation just to quit. Just a temptation to lean back instead of to lean forward. Feeling like what you're called to is too difficult, so can I draw again? (laughs) Can I like reach into the bag and pull out a like Destiny B that doesn't involve all this sacrifice? Now, I'm going to give you tons of scripture this morning. Yes, I'm aware it's Palm Sunday. We're getting to that part, okay? Some of you are like, ah, does he not? No, no, I know. We're going to get there. But let me give you the very short version of the sermon. This is for those of you who are 17 years old and after church, your mom is going to ask you what was the sermon about, okay? Let me save you the difficulty of, that, of like filtering it through all the, you know, crazy stories. This is the short version of today's sermon. God is faithful. Yes, you can. He will provide you a way to endure and your endurance will give him glory. That's the whole deal. Like we could sing and call it a night. We're not going to. Don't get your hopes up. But that's it. Life could be described as the good, bad, and the ugly. Maybe the good, the bad, the terrible, the weird. 
the family, the neighbors, the ugly, the good, the more the ugly. How your heart manages all of those experiences will dictate how you stand before Jesus at the end of the age. Now, the apostle Peter was never short of words. It's a miracle that there isn't like first, second, third, fourth, fifth to like ninth Peter because he talked so much at the most inopportune times. But he says in chapter five, uh, eight to 10 of first Peter, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Most people go through life completely disconnected from the idea that the enemy is coming against them, and as a result, they never stand firm against them, and they're never actually established in their destiny. Peter writes, be on your guard, you are being challenged daily, and if you don't recognize what that challenge is, you're going to be isolated, you're going to be cut off, and you're going to fall. Now, there's a body of thought when it comes to trials or to difficulties that the best way to deal with them is mind over matter. You know, that your ability to thrive hinges on your ability to deny circumstances. Right? Oh, you can't say, that's a dark word. Don't speak that word over yourself. Not speaking, I didn't pick this word. This is just what's happening right now, okay? Understanding the circumstances, is, the idea of denying them doesn't give you victory over them. There's this idea that if we phrase things in a positive way, it changes reality. It really doesn't. I saw a sign in a gym one time. Some of you are shocked I've ever been in a gym. I saw a sign in a gym one time. It said, pain is fear leaving your body. No, pain is pain. Pain is your body saying, stop that. And ignoring that doesn't change what pain is. Your ability to thrive is not mind over matter or denial of circumstances, okay? Actually, circumstances matter, even difficult ones, and the range of circumstances that you walk through in life, some which will be amazing, some which will be devastating, are what God uses to prepare your heart for his ministry to you so that you can receive your destiny. If you have no experience, Good or bad, you have no need for God, no heart transformation, no destiny. Engineers, of course, are working on alternative power sources all the time. They've developed things like solar and windmills. But one of the most under-resourced areas of natural power on the globe is the idea of tidal power, or the fact that the tides come in and come out. Now, problem with wind is sometimes the wind doesn't blow, right? Works great. When the wind blows, when the wind doesn't blow, you have no power. Solar works good during the day, not so good at night. Solar, you know, fans go, but what about batteries? Yeah, but that's not generating, okay? But wind blows, doesn't blow, sun shines, doesn't shine. The tides always flow, right? Always. Tide comes in, tide goes out. Tide comes in, tide goes out. They're putting turbines 
in the tides now and they can generate power whether the tide is rising or whether the tide is pulling away. There aren't too many ways to harness energy or to produce power no matter what happens in the environment, but God has been doing this for a long time. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know for those who love God that all things work together for good for those that are called according to all things. The water is rising, God is generating good in your life and he's bringing it to your destiny. If the water is receding and you're like, this is bad, he's still generating strength in your life. God uses difficult and painful purposes to produce good in our lives and to extend the invitation of God to other people who might have never heard of him if you had not endured what you're called to endure. To be all that God wants to make of you is to position yourself for increase in your heart no matter what comes your way. And just because he's good, Jesus shows us the way. Never more in history than in the week that we mark this week. In the week leading up to Jesus' resurrection. Because no one on earth walked a more varied group of experiences on their way to their destiny than Jesus did. And no one has had the range of experience that Jesus did, especially during such a short period of time. In one week in his earthly life, Jesus went from triumph to tragedy and back and never once left the will of his father. As we move into this week before the resurrection, we see Jesus experiencing some of the greatest pleasures of his earthly life. And it is a life that has seen pressure from the beginning. Imagine what it is like to be 12 years old, in your mind, know fully who you are, and your heart wants to do things like teach the religious leaders, and your Jewish mother just wants you to go home and have a sandwich. Like he wrestled with that at 12. Imagine fasting for 40 days and then being tempted by Satan himself, or being chased by a crowd who is more interested in what you can do for them than who you really are. Or being cross-examined by your religious leaders for your motivation every time you did something good. The man lived under pressure his entire life. We think of, you know, we picture Jesus primarily sitting on a hillside surrounded by children, handing out sandwiches, you know, like that's it. No, his life was pressure. And in this week in history, he encounters increasing pressure followed by dark, crushing moments. And yet with the variety of emotions, the tide of favor rising and then receding, Jesus never fails. He endures. Historically, this is called Palm Sunday. And it marks what the church calls Holy Week. Now, Jesus may not have had that name for it, but he didn't need a name for it. He experienced it. Let's look at Matthew 21, 1 through 4. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. 
It's interesting because this is the only passage we have in Scripture that notes Jesus ever riding anything. Nowhere else in Scripture does he, other than this story, does he ride a colt or a donkey or a scooter or anything? There's no, nowhere, anywhere does they mention Jesus. doesn't mean that he, you know, we can't make the argument that he never does, but it's interesting that it's never measured. And I wonder if there are times when he had been offered a ride and he declined. No, I'm going to walk. Why? Because it sends the wrong message. What message is he talking about? He's talking about the message of the prophet Zechariah. Chapter 9, verse 9, the prophet is prophesying about the Messiah to come. He says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It, there was a symbolism there of a king riding in to Jerusalem, and the whole earth was watching for it and waiting for it. And Jesus is like, oh, I don't want to uncork that thing yet. I don't want to ride in yet. But the day comes and he says, now is the day for me to ride into Jerusalem and uncork this series of events that's about to happen. And it was a day like no other in his life. He had been ridiculed. He had also been encouraged. But nothing had ever happened like this. Chapter 21, 8 to 11. Most of the crowd, like it doesn't say all the crowd. There's always that one guy. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks along the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him. So he's got people ahead and behind and they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Even in the glory of this, he understood what his mission was, though. Even with the crowds in front of him and behind him, cheering him on, saying, The king... The king is here. Even in the middle of this, he understood what he was facing. Luke tells the story that as they came into sight of the city, it adds this detail, chapter 19, 41, 42. When he drew near and saw the city. Imagine, he just pulls up. There's an overhang. He sees Jerusalem laying out there. It says, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He's so gripped with Jerusalem, he weeps over that, even as it's ringing in his ears, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. This is, if the week ended here, he had quite a week. You know, after three years of public ministry, finally that the bulk of people understand who he is and welcome him into Jerusalem, he has this moment, even if this was the, okay, it's done, call it a day, to be recognized by the people who you were going to bring freedom to? Does it get better than being known and people understanding who you are? It gets very different after this. The major events of this week between his triumphal reentry and the resurrection from the dead were full of tension and strife and pain. And the tension starts as soon as he gets into town. Scripture records that on Monday... He enters the temple. 
Matthew 21, 12, 13. Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and of the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. There's a hundred things to talk about in this story. I tell this story to my kids. And to be honest, my, one of my, my children who's very tender and very merciful has an issue with this story. It's like, couldn't Jesus find another way? Like she'd like to have a discussion with him about it. Why was Jesus so angry and why did he act so out of character here? This is what he was reacting to because you don't, in a quick reading, you don't fully get it. Because everyone was expected to bring a sacrifice and because it was hard to travel with a sacrifice. Some of you had a hard time getting here with two kids, okay? Bringing two kids and a goat and you had to walk. So what they would do is they would set up an opportunity for you to purchase your sacrifice when you got there. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. The wheels would fall off after, after you purchased the sacrifice. Because when you would arrive and you would purchase the sacrifice, they would turn the sacrifice over to the priest. The priest would lead it in behind the Holy of Holies and out the back door and around the front to sell the same goat to the next person. The sacrifice was never being made. People were paying money and leaving without their sins atoned for. The priests were in on it. The money changers were in on it. Why does Jesus respond so violently to what's... We're like, we have interpreted this so... I've heard pastors that won't have a Christian bookstore in the lobby because of money changers in the temple. That's not what that's about. It's about them disregarding the sacrificial system. And he comes in and goes, you mean I'm coming to Jerusalem to fulfill and to be the ultimate sacrifice? And this is how you, like you're circumventing the whole system. You're making a profit and circumventing the sacrificial system that I'm coming to fulfill. If you think about this way about these goats, what are you going to think about the sacrifice that I'm about to make? Yesterday, he was riding down the hill, hearing people yell, Hosanna. Today, he's in very loud and public conflict with the keepers of his own house over how they were treating the system that he has come to fulfill. He's thinking, six days and I'm that lamb. And you are treating this like it's a joke. Then the week gets even more intense as he starts to teach. In Matthew 22 and 23, we have what scholars call the Olivet Discourse. Now, we're not going to teach through this because there's just so much. But keep in mind, it is a roller coaster, okay? He's ridden into the king's greeting. He's locked horns with religious leaders. Now he starts to teach. Given the tension that is there, what kind of sermon would you imagine, baby Jesus, meek and mild, teaching? You would think he would like, behold my people. Let's take it down a notch. Everybody just relax. No, he goes heavy. And it's subtle, but if we look at it closely, Jesus is actually combative in a way that is an extension of the event at the temple. Matthew 22, 1 through 8. I told you to read a lot of scripture. And Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. 
And he sent other servants saying, tell those that are invited, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm and another to his business while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Now, if you read the whole story, it can be interpreted as the story of Jesus making room at the, t at the table for people who did not realize they had been invited. But if you read this first portion, you realize the message is there are some of you that have been invited and chose not to attend. He comes out of overturning the temple's tables and then preaches about people who you would expect to be in fellowship with him who have refused the call. Now that got the attention of the religious leaders, some who might have been spillover from the crowd in the temple. And then the sermon just never really lightens up. Some of you, I teach for 40 minutes and you think that was a fire hose. This, you go home and read this through. Let me give you Matthew 23 and 24. Here's just the synopsis of what he touches in this sermon. Pay your taxes. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Love God and love others. Then he lays out seven woes to the religious leaders about them making God inaccessible to other people. Prepare your lamps with oil. Be good stewards of your talents. And oh yeah, final judge, judgment is coming. Amen, let's stand. Like he crams all of that into this one sermon. It's like they got punched in the face over and over and over again. It was a barn burner of a sermon. There's something in that all of that discourse for everybody to be offended at. We don't have a record of this, but I am betting that the disciples were beginning to get the idea that the revolution that they had signed up for was not the one that was coming. The crowd that cheered him a few days ago was growing really quiet. Even if you liked Jesus on Palm Sunday, he was getting harder and harder to endure. And if you were a disciple, you were starting to wonder, why does Jesus make everything hard for himself? Jesus never made things hard. People make things hard by refusing to align with the truth that Jesus is. You want to be a friend with Jesus? Get really close to the truth, no matter what it is. From this point in the week, things take a very somber turn. So sober that it's hard to recognize that Palm Sunday and these events were only a couple of days apart. But being God, Jesus was fully aware of this, but seemingly under the cover of darkness, a plot had begun to form against him. Now, we're not reading this passage, but before the plot comes to light, Jesus is with his friends and Mary breaks an alabaster box of perfume and washes his feet with this, wipes his feet with her hair. She's pouring out all that people might think are valuable on his feet. It's extravagant worship and one disciple is particularly offended. John records the name of that disciple is actually Judas. And Judas says, why is she doing that? She could have taken that valuable oil and given it to the poor. It also records that Judas had been a thief from the beginning. 
and really had probably no desire to give that money to the poor, but he knew if that money got into the coffers, he could skim off of that. You think denying Jesus was his first trip into that kind of behavior? He'd been doing it for a long time. Another note there, not everyone who says, what about the poor is actually helpful to the poor. Matthew 26, 14 to 16. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray them. For Judas took silver for the life of Jesus, how he had already betrayed Jesus in his heart. Like it was, what do you pay me? What are you willing to give me? He had a price and they were willing to pay it. Judas is shopping his loyalty to who gives him whatever he wants. That makes the betrayal all the more bitter. With that hanging out there, okay, they gather for the Passover meal. They celebrate the same event that we will recognize on Friday when we recognize our, our, our Seder meal. But at the table are both the savior of the world and his bitter betrayer at the same place. Is there anything worse than a family dinner when there is something hanging over it and some people don't know about it and some people do? That's what this meal was like. Matthew 26, 20 to 25. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12, speaking of Jesus. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and they began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Uh, Spurgeon makes the comment that it is a very beautiful character trait of the disciples that they all said, is it me? Nobody said, is it Judas? Like everyone had this tenderness of, is it me? We have friends who were in a revival meeting one time where the guy who was preaching was operating in words of knowledge. They had their 12-year-old son with them. And the, the minister said, there's someone here who is living in adultery. You're here with your wife. And if you don't make it right, I can't guarantee you're even going to live. Like it was a sober word. Of course, nobody, you know, nobody stands up and goes, that's me. Like, you know, and so he kept hammering the point home. And our friend's 12-year-old son looked at his mom and says, Mama, is it me? She's like, no, no, you're no. But the disciples are all like, this is sober. They're like, have I done something? Like, it, it, there's something beautiful about living in a season of self-examination. You know, and going, where's my heart in this? Jesus answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born. And Judas, who would betray him, who it could be argued already has because he took the money. Judas said, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, You've said so. This moment of Jesus asking, is it I, Rabbi? Knowing full well it is him, it's a power play. 
I know what I know. What do you know? It's the most Machiavellian move in history. If Judas does not believe Jesus is who he says at this point, he's already rejected Jesus' claims. But if he does believe Jesus is who he says he is, it's the most satanic move ever. Is it I? Now, we know the rest of the week. Judas leaves, ultimately takes his own life. Jesus goes to prayer. The disciples go to sleep. His friends fail him. You can hear the agony in his voice when you read the scripture. And he says, could you not tarry with me for an hour? Come on, guys. You see where this is going. Can you not do this for an hour? And then when he says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, let it be as you, not I would have it. He said, Lord, if you're not going to let it pass, will you give me strength to endure? And by Friday night, Jesus is crucified on the cross. I'm going to visit that story more next week. But as he hangs there, naked and beaten, and at the same time, helpless and powerful. Matthew 27, 41 to 44. The chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers, get this, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. How much humiliation can one man endure? All of this on the heels of him riding into Jerusalem and hearing the crowd saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. In this moment of endurance, when the tide is turned and now it's going the other way, his faithfulness produces fruit. He's motivated by the same thing that has motivated him his entire life. Love. For the love of Israel, he stopped and wept over the city. For the love of his father's house, he turned over tables. For the love of his own disciples, he preached in his final days about struggle that was coming. And because his motivation was so consistent, he could be obedient to his father no matter how much the pressure bore down on him. You are never more like Jesus than when you stand steady through pressure. You never attract the eyes of the Father like you do when you stand steady through the eyes of pressure. I want to ask if our worship team would come up. Because his motivation was consistent... He was, had the ability to endure and to bring glory to the Father. January 1986. I was college sophomore, freshman, I guess. And uh, I was standing in the cafeteria about 11.30 in the morning. I remember this like it was yesterday. Holding a tray. 
And a young guy who I didn't know very well, but lived in my dorm, came in and he looked like he'd seen a ghost. And he looked at me and he said, the space shuttle blew up. To be totally honest, I didn't even realize we'd launched a space shuttle that day. The year before, we, had, we think we'd launched nine in 1985. And it had happened so often that it was kind of like, you know, do we have anybody in space or not? It just happened so regularly there for a while. Space Shuttle Challenger blew up, was it 73 seconds after launch, killing seven crew members, including the first teacher that they were going to send into space, Christy McAuliffe. Immediately, they canceled all scheduled flights because they had all kinds of flights that were going to go up that year to try and figure out what had happened. Well, clearly there was an explosion, but sending a rocket up to space, I mean, that's by nature an explosion. It's a controlled explosion, but what happened? Reviewing the videotape over and over, closer and closer, they discovered that along the right side of the rocket, in the first two and a half seconds of flight, there were eight little puffs of smoke in two and a half seconds, tiny, that indicated the failure of a tiny little O-ring about the size of a dime that had one job, which was to expand or contract to keep things sealed. In other words, to withstand pressure. And because that little tiny piece was unable to withstand pressure, the entire thing exploded. This morning, I'm telling you, the Lord wants to strengthen you to withstand pressure. Not just because he wants to get you through what you're getting through, but because the the result of your failing to stand under that pressure is bigger than you even realize. It's not isolated to this one little thing. There are people watching you. There are people dependent on you. There are other systems built into yours. And if you can't stand under pressure, it affects all of those. But if you can, remember, if you endure, he comes and brings you strength. And then he receives glory from your endurance. You can actually make God look good by withstanding pressure. Stand with me if you would. We want to, let's just go through and sing one worship song. Then we are going to celebrate communion together as a church family. Blessed is the one Temptation For when he's approved He'll receive a cross And blessed is the one Who endures temptation For when he's approved
Matthew 26, 26 to 29 says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples. And he says, take, eat, this is my body. Daniel, can you come down? I'm just going to ask Daniel Grinch to pray over the, the body this morning. this morning we look upon you we hear the stories and we read the words but now we lift our eyes and we look upon the man whose body was broken for us the one that before the veil of the temple was torn your very flesh was torn that in order to escort us in to the very presence of God you gave your body for us and then you turn around and say, now you are my body. And so even as we take this for our own selves, our own yes in response to what you've done, we take this saying, yes, we belong to you. And we belong to one another, that we are your body, that we are the ones who will reach for the grace of the Father to withstand all that we face as yours, as your body. And so we take this body today with our eyes upon you and gratitude in our hearts in Jesus' name. Let's take and eat. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said to them, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Father, we thank you for the blood of your son. We thank you that he stands at your right hand, interceding on our behalf. Father, we thank you for the endurance of your son, whose blood ran down his own body, fell to the ground, cleansing us white as snow. Right now we receive that, God. We received your gift. We honor his sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we worship your name. Who blesses his sons? Who blesses his daughters? To fight the good fight. I see a man.
want to share one thing briefly and then go back into that chorus. But the man who stands interceding. I was, I was listening to a message recently and they were talking about the story where Jesus comes to Peter and he said, Peter, Satan has requested permission to sift you. He's requested to come and to take you out. And, and just they're kind of dramatizing this. And it's like Peter looks, he's like, well, you told him no, right? And Jesus said, no, I didn't. I said, go ahead, Satan, take your best shot. But on one condition that I get to pray for him. On one condition that I get to make intercession. And the idea is that Jesus' intercession for us is so significant that he's okay with the blows coming. He's okay with the pressure coming. He's okay with the difficulties and the hardships and the attacks because it says the one condition that I've allowed this is that I get to stand at the right hand of the Father and pray for you and pray for you. If we just could have revelation of the significance of the Son of Man ever living to make intercession for us. Father, I ask this morning that as we lift our eyes to you, that we would see the revelation of what it means that there is a man at the right hand of the Father ever praying, ever crying out, ever contending for our fullness, for our endurance, for the strength and the grace that we would make it through. Take us into that place this morning that we would see the gift of the prayers of Jesus that avail on our behalf. Let's sing this song again. Yes, I worship the Father of lights, who blesses His sons, who blesses His daughters, to fight the good fight. I see a man at your right hand who prays for me daily. My faith will not fail me. Yes, I worship the Father of lights, who blesses His sons. precious son endured and stood up under and submitted to your will. I just pray a spirit of endurance over our church family, over those that are watching online, over those that are listening later. Father, that endurance would be a hallmark of their lives. And with that, the blessing of God.